The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Once again, we are in 1 Peter, a letter written by Peter some 30-plus years after he walked with Jesus as an immediate disciple, man with his foot in his mouth much of the time. We have a hard time almost associating the mature, wise Peter of this letter with the man of some 30 years prior. But it is a great witness to the work of God's Spirit, maturing this man and growing him up in the Lord. I read today 1 Peter 2, from verse 4 through verse 10. Please hear God's Word. As you come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is God's holy word. Several decades ago at a dedication service for the huge... Episcopal Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul, found in Washington, D.C., better known as the National Cathedral. Reverend Charles Perry said, We all know that this building is too small to contain God. He said that about a building that is two football fields in length, whose tallest spire rises to 300 feet, and the largest bell in its tower weighs 12 tons. The National Cathedral in Washington is well worth a visit, by the way. If you've never seen it, I urge you to do that sometime. It has 200 windows, and one of them actually contains a piece of moon rock brought back by astronauts. This huge edifice 
took 80 years to build. The president at the time of the groundbreaking was Teddy Roosevelt, and at the dedication it was President George H.W. Bush. 80 years of construction. I think of that when I think of our last building program here at Westminster, which was in the planning stages in the late 1990s and was not occupied by us for worship until 2006, about nine years or more of planning and constructing, and it seemed endless. But compared to 80 years, it seems very short. And you think of other things. They tell me the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris took 182 years to construct. By that comparison, we were flying along, making great progress in 10 years. Today, we hear 1 Peter 2 describing Christianity's ultimate church building program, one that is everlasting in scope, one that has already consumed 20 centuries and will not come to a complete end until Christ returns one great day to be the husband of his church. The living God is not confined within any kind of stone or wood boxes. Mr. Perry at the dedication of the cathedral was right. No building is large enough to contain God. In fact, we remind ourselves, and we should be reminded frequently perhaps, that if some catastrophe took this structure away from us and and we had to sit here on this same ground along Oregon Pike with no walls and no roof above us and we were on folding chairs, let's imagine it's summer, and uh, summertime, here we are in the open sky in an open meadow. Would we be the church of Christ? Of course we would. It's good that we remind ourselves that in colonial days, this kind of a room was called a meeting house. I still like that word as a definition because it says the church meets here. The building is not the church. If the walls and roof did not contain us, it would not be the church. That's what 1 Peter 2 declares. The church of Jesus Christ is not a physical building. That's a simple lesson. We could say amen in the benediction, and we would have learned something good if we learned that. But there's more to understand here. We are not a building built by an architect or stonemasons or carpenters or electricians. We are the living dwelling of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of that frequently. And we are a living organism composed of breathing, praying, and praising people, men and women of faith in Christ, who are inhabited by the Spirit of God. Now, in chapter 1, Peter was showing the wonder of God's salvation that brings us a new birth through faith in Christ. And it tells of our being new people, people who have an inheritance in heaven and so on, who are guarded to what God is doing until the last time. We're new people. But now we seem to turn a corner here at chapter 2, verse 4, as we hear about a new status that we have as God's true people, his representatives in this world. I have just two main points to put to you today, and the first begins here in chapter 4. Christ is the living cornerstone of his church. Peter actually went to the Old Testament 
brought out several references, especially Isaiah 28:16, as he saw this fulfilled in Christ, as God was saying, Behold, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. This building you're in has a cornerstone. If you've never noticed it, it's right out the doors opposite me at the bottom of the stairs, and it says, I believe, see if my memory's correct, it should say 2006, the year that this building was completed and occupied. Now, that's a merely ceremonial stone. I don't think that that uh, stone that says 2006 has any special role in supporting or uh, setting the dimensions of this building. But many of you know, and you've heard in the past, that cornerstones served quite a different purpose long ago. When ancient buildings, especially stone buildings and large ones, were being built, the cornerstone had a tremendous function. It had to be the finest stone all squared up. If it wasn't already square, which it probably wasn't, the masons would take their chisels and make it a perfect 90-degree angle stone and set it in place. And then maybe they'd set another one over here and another one over here and another one over there. And with a transit, they would align those. And between those square stones, the walls would be built and the walls would be set by the dimensions of the cornerstones. Peter quotes from three different Old Testament references here, Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8, bringing out things about Christ as the prime cornerstone upon whom the building of God's people of faith is founded. We are measured and put in place according to what God has determined us to be with Christ as our foundation. Now, Peter uses a unusual, at least, figure of speech in calling Christ the living stone. I think you can appreciate how that is an odd metaphor, a stone that lives. I don't know of any stones that are alive around my house anywhere. I have uh, some big chunks of quartz in my yard that were turned over when the property was bulldozed, and I held on to them and put them along a walkway where they can be seen, but they're not living stones. They're attractive, but very much dead stones. A living stone sounds like an oxymoron. It's like talking about maybe a tame rattlesnake or a mild hurricane. A living stone? Stones don't live, we say. But the metaphor here that God wants us to think about is deliberately something that gets a hold of our mind and says, well, what what does that mean? Stone is something permanent, something lasting. Living means something warm and dynamic. And Christ, of course, is both of those things. He does fit that metaphor. You remember in Matthew 16, Peter professed his faith originally in Christ in an early day. And and he said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. The living nature of Christ was stressed. And here in 1 Peter 1, 123, last week we saw the idea that uh, we were hearing about the living and abiding Word of God. Peter was saying Christ is permanent. He lasts. He stands fast. He cannot be moved, but he's also alive. He's not dead stone. In fact, 
Remember, the Old Testament was always condemning the idea of stones that couldn't have any life, the idols that were mocked by the prophet Isaiah that couldn't answer the prayers of people, the stone gods that stood for Baal or others like that, where in Elijah's time the priests of Baal were challenged to call out to their God and get him to answer. And they screamed and cried all day long, O Baal! O Baal! Hear us! And the result was total silence because their gods were dead stone. Our God is a living God, and Jesus Christ is his living Son. We don't liken him to the stone-cold, motionless Buddha or something of that type, but we do mark his permanence as well as his life. And the question becomes, how will men and women on this earth respond to Christ, who is this living stone, the formative part of the church of God? Well, Peter says they will respond one of two ways, either in faith, in trust that he indeed is the Lord of history, or they will trip over him and fall down with a crash. The same Christ who is chosen and precious to a believer is someone who can cause the destruction, the shipwreck of an unbeliever. First Peter 2.8 says here, these unbelievers stumble because they disobey the message. They hear the good news of Christ and they fall upon it. It crushes them. They might take hold of it in some superficial way, but they certainly do not believe in it sincerely. Seems like I often bring up boyhood experiences uh, on my grandparents' farm. You can tell that it was an important time, a good time for me in my life. And I remember one experience I had that I always remember, uh, something that uh, on the farm that was meaningful work that even a 10 or 12-year-old boy was trusted to be able to do was candling eggs. Now, I know in Lancaster County there are people who know what candling eggs are all about. I'm sure it once involved a candle as a light source. Now it involves a a bright light bulb and eggs going down a little chute or conveyor, passing in front of the light, and you're sitting there watching the egg because if the egg has any blood in it, of course it's a spoiled egg, you don't use that, you don't sell it, and you'll see a dull red glow through the translucent shell with the light behind it. And even a 10-year-old, if he stays awake, that's the key, (laughs) can be trusted to candle eggs and pull out the ones, the strays, that don't belong. I thought of that because how, how like that is the picture here of lives passing before the great brilliant light of Jesus Christ a light that shines right through us and reveals what is in us, reveals the destiny that is in us, the fact that we either are destined for faith and trust in Christ and belonging to him, or we have unbelief as our core and we will be rejected. That's what's being told here. Matthew twenty-one forty-four has the words of Jesus. He who falls on this stone, this cornerstone, will be broken to pieces, and the one on whom it falls, it says, will be crushed. Now, many people try to avoid, I guess, encountering Christ. They say, well, I don't, I don't uh, say anything against your Christ. 
Uh, I'm just pretty neutral about it. If that's good for you, fine, but it's not for me. Thank you very much. Well, that person, in trying to evade the cornerstone of Christ, has collided with it, and it will be, in the end, to his spiritual ruin. You cannot evade it. You cannot evade a verdict about Christ. In the act of raising him from the dead, the Father installed his Son, his King, on the throne of heaven, and you could more easily right now try to go outside there and pull the sun down out of the sky than take Christ off that throne or declare him not to be the cornerstone. You will be judged and either blessed or condemned in a final day by what you do with Christ, the living cornerstone of the church of God. Now we find a second main point here in verse 5 and also in 9 and 10. I state this point this way. Each believer in Christ becomes himself or herself a living stone in God's household of faith. Many times in the New Testament, the idea of the verb to come or coming is used to mean approaching Christ, coming to Christ in faith. I think of the great invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight when Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Coming to Christ means trusting in Christ, believing in Christ. And it is, I believe, a continuous activity of the people of God. Look at how it starts out at verse 4 there. As you come to him, in other words, something you're doing in a continual way in your life, as you come to this living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The interesting thing is we kind of ask ourselves here, what are we supposed to do with the metaphors, the verbal pictures here? It it comes out a little odd, let's say, to picture a house built of stones and the stones are alive. Do you have that picture in your mind? It's, It's kind of awkward, isn't it, to picture what's being spoken about here? But I want to think of this. When it says you are being built into a spiritual house, keep in mind It is Christ who is the master builder. And I'm thinking of the fact that it's more than a coincidence that as a young man, Jesus was a carpenter in Nazareth. He built things. He built houses. You know, we think of a carpenter. I have one in my family who builds cabinets and furniture-type items. And that's more like a cabinet maker, perhaps. But this member of my family is also a general contractor. And believe it or not, the word for carpenter used of Jesus in his days in Nazareth really implies more the general contractor idea, a builder of homes, than it does simply a carpenter who builds tables and chairs. So think of the fact that Jesus, as a real man of history, actually built homes for people to live in. You know, every once in a while in the real estate ads, uh, a home will be sold, and maybe if some premier builder was involved in that home, it will say, you know, John Doe built home. And, oh, I want to get that because that was built by the great John Doe. Well, we're reading about dwellings built by Jesus Christ himself. 
Every Christian who trusts in Christ as the cornerstone becomes a lively stone, a living stone in the house of God. Paul would say the same thing as Peter. He did say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and following. Paul wrote, You Christians are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as chief cornerstone, for in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ you are being built, this is Paul, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Exact same thing as Peter is saying in First Peter 2. Unless Jesus Christ dwells within the people of his church, I can see no logical explanation for the endurance of the church of Christ throughout 20 centuries of human history. If you go back and study some basic church history and just see how the church has been scorned and rejected and criticized and attacked and even done harm by people within her as well as outside. We sang that line of the hymn that in the church is one foundation, that there are false sons within the church that have done her harm. Why? How has this institution endured? For 20 centuries, when you have any idea of the amount of opposition and attack she has faced, we can only say she has survived because it is Christ who dwells within her and guarantees the existence and the triumph of his church. Otherwise, she would have fallen many times over. Christ determines, God determines, that he will have a habitation, a place for himself to live in souls coming alive as they trust in the Son. I once heard a wise uh, line about the church. It was said to me a long time ago by an elder in my congregation at the time. He said, I think what is being said here in a passage like this is that we are not to be God's vacation cottage where he visits once in a while for a rest. We are to be his chosen permanent domicile. Yes, that is true. We are not merely places where God retreats to occasionally when we invite him in. We are to be the place where he, by his Spirit, dwells. And therefore, this text goes on to say, as these living stones, we are literally the priesthood of Christ. We are the ones who offer up spiritual sacrifices. What are those? Our hymns of praise our music, our messages as we study and analyze and apply the Word of God, all the things we do as we give to support sending the gospel to far places and work in this community to serve other individuals and help broken people. These are sacrifices of praise by the people of God who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. One of the most concise verses about what worship or offering spiritual sacrifices really is in the New Testament, I would say, is 1 Corinthians 14.25. There Paul is saying that when the Corinthians were worshiping and praising Christ and hearing the Word of God, he said, an unbeliever might wander into their assembly and hearing the powerful gospel, that person would say, quote, 
they would fall down and worship God, saying, Surely God is in your midst. When people are worshiping the true and living God and offering up his sacrifice of praise, that is when they're making God known. They're really evangelizing as they worship. I can recall quite a few years ago being a tourist in London, and we had occasion to go to the great, I'm not going to say the great church because I've told you it's not a church, the great building called St. Paul's Cathedral in London, dominating building whose dome is seen from all over the city. Amazing, by the way, that that ever survived the bombings of World War II. It was damaged. But we went through first, before we came up to the main floor, they took us in a, an entrance that I don't think they call it the basement. In fact, if you want the Anglican term, it's the undercroft. All right, we went into the basement slash undercroft of the church, which actually is a huge cemetery. I would say an acre or more in this lowest level is simply filled with tombs and statues and sarcophagus, stone carvings, memorials to generals and admirals and great poets and literary leaders and politicians and so on. And here are all these stone items down there dedicated really to lifeless human achievements that no longer endure but are simply memories. And yet if you would enter then the main floor of St. Paul's, you would find a glorious worship space. The day we were there, actually, they had just uh, celebrated the Queen Mother's, I believe it was her, either 95th or 100th birthday. This is quite a few years ago when the Queen Mother was still living. Had been just celebrated and uh, with a service of worship there. Well, on the last page of Scripture, you come to Revelation 21 and 22, and it tells you an interesting thing. The eternal heaven does not contain a church building. It doesn't even contain a meeting house. In fact, there's an explicit denial that such is needed. As John wrote, his vision of heaven, the final dwelling of people with God, he said, I didn't see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and we will see his face, and we will reign with him forever and ever. That's the marvelous promise we have. We living stones will see his face. We will dwell with the King of kings and Lord of lords. God has already sent his Son into our midst. John chapter 1, in a a, a literal reading of the Greek there, says that God came and pitched his tent among us. God, the Eternal One, came among us in Jesus Christ, who in flesh lived among us and made himself known and became the cornerstone, the head of our church. Christian, I'm bidding you today to realize the amazing privilege that this passage defines for us, stated here. Listen carefully once more to 1 Peter 2.9. You are a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Now you are God's people. What could possibly be any better than that? Thanks be to God. Father, 
we ask you to keep shaping us as your church. As Jesus Christ is present by the Holy Spirit in a reborn people, here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, not just within this meeting house, but within many others and across this land and across this earth, will you use your church, an enduring vessel for yourself, for the knowledge and the presence of Christ, lifting up spiritual sacrifices to you, praising your name in this generation, in this time when hatred of the church is rife on all hands, will you use us, Father? Will you make yourself known to your own honor and praise through Jesus Christ, our living cornerstone? Amen.